fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's nobody's calling nobody nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society on July 26th. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well enough. I'm looking forward to talking about other things that make it even more difficult for us to enjoy sports. <laughs> In some ways, I'm wondering if this podcast is like just making our life worse in an attempt to make the world better. Well, I think it's uh, for me, it stands as like a, uh, an understanding or a case study in uh, cognitive dissonance in some ways. Like mm-hmm. we spend, uh, you know, an hour every week and then I'm spending another hour or two editing stuff afterwards about this. And it's like, okay. Um, so we're talking about how much sports are problematic and yet we still do it all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. It makes me wonder if you did the same thing for other things that exist in the world. So I wonder if you had like, um, a critique of the art world podcast, if it would lead to similar places. You know, I, w- I would imagine so, but maybe it's maybe it's worthwhile for us to think about like taking a, f- a five week spell and doing something like, wh- why do we like sports? Um, why why are we still watching it? Um, and maybe try to unpack that a little bit. Yeah, it also makes me think of the value of pointing to positive things mm-hmm. and being intentional about that. Well, and I'm going to go ahead and, and jump in here on this um, and say that I, uh, I'm i going to go ahead and nominate this for a new segment on the show, which is our shout out of the week. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and give this first one to Kansas City Chiefs starting right guard, Laurent Duvernay Tardif. Did you see this story? I did not. Right. Yeah, so uh, uh, Lawrence. Uh, was the first uh, NFL player to opt out of his contract for the coming season. Really fascinating guy. Went to McGill. Um, so, I mean, we already know he's a smart dude, but did medical school while he was there, which is fascinating to think about uh, and has been pursuing some medical school stuff while he's been in the NFL. And just a massive shout out because when the COVID stuff hit, he has been working uh, in a long-term care facility in Quebec uh, since it kind of kicked off and is now choosing to kind of stay the path for that, which I just find uh, incredibly admirable and, and good on you. That's fascinating. How old is he? Uh, so he was drafted in 2014, I think. So he would be uh, something like 28, something like that, I think. Yeah. How is the team responding uh, both, you know, uh, they obviously Chiefs won the Super Bowl last year, so a rather prominent team. Uh, Mahomes has come out uh, saying he was surprised but supportive, and really, uh, I was blown away. Tyreek Hill uh, tweeted um, uh, about how it was he loved uh, loved Larry. Apparently, that's what they call him, uh, and he thought this was the coolest thing that he could do, essentially. Which um, uh, just gotta love that. I think. Uh, you know, we often crap on these athletes for 
caring so much about sports, but I think we're finding that um, a lot of these folks are a lot smarter than we give them credit for and a lot more engaged and aware than we give them credit for. Absolutely. That actually connects with what I think I could already go ahead and call a shout out. (laughs) (laughs) All right, go for it. So I was struck this week by the amount of player voices that were coming through from the NBA bubble. Mm. And while I think we would agree that the NBA is better than other leagues in in this capacity, in the sense that I, I get the sense, I don't have data to back up this claim, but I get the sense that player voices are louder in the NBA than they are elsewhere. And, uh, so they're already probably ahead of other leagues, but I found that some of the creative outlets from within the bubble are pretty fascinating to pay attention to. And some of these I sent along to you, but mm-hmm. uh, JaVale McGee has a vlog um, that could be unpacked and talked a little bit more. But uh, also JJ Reddick's podcast which uh, we've kind of talked about J.J. Reddick before, about how he is really good mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at um, the whole podcasting thing and commentating. And J.J. Reddick had Patrick Beverly on. And with I want to talk more about that, but I think my biggest statement is my shout-out is the voices themselves coming out and the fact that those voices coming out from the bubble – were creative and fun and playful, but also very insightful and very thoughtful and genuine and earnest. It it gave me some hope. And then that was paired even further with, I don't know if you have watched any of the arena. Uh, So it's a new TNT uh, NBA um, collaborative project. And Hmm. uh, this first week uh, they had four episodes. I've only watched the first one. And then throughout the season, I think they're going to be more intermittent, but uh, it's essentially a space for, um, I I don't know how they would describe it. I get the impression that it's a, a space for black lives matter to be discussed in a public platform that is highly produced. Uh, so it's a, it's an extremely highly produced show. It has the, all the bells and whistles of TNT, uh, but the main central tenet is to explore and to discuss and unpack the significance of how Black Lives Matter is manifesting within the NBA. Hmm. And th- one particular thing stood out, and this is what kind of drew it all together for me and cr- made all these things into one, is... Uh, Draymond Green and Charles Barkley are two of the uh, hosts of the show, I guess you would call them, or pundits sitting there. So it's Dwayne Wade, Draymond, and Charles. Mm. And Draymond and Charles don't like each other. Yeah. (laughs) And have had uh, major issues with each other, and they immediately started the show with that and gave both of them a platform and opportunity to give some – explanation for why they have said what they've said about each other. And they've said some pretty harsh things about each other. And Charles Barkley kind of went, I'm summarizing and paraphrasing, but he went with the argument that this is my job. This is like what I I do. And this is what makes our show like win 24 Emmys or whatever. Um, We say what we think. And sometimes it is blown up for entertainment. 
but it makes for good f- television and that's my job is good television. Um, but he says, I also say what I believe. And then Draymond came back and said, I can sit here with Charles and hear that. I want to say at the same time that what those guys say with their platform often affects players' pockets. Mm-hmm. And that's what they need to keep in mind. And he's like, I'm fine. Like Charles didn't hurt my pockets, but those guys have hurt other players' pockets. Uh, and he spoke of JaVale McGee. And he said, Shaq making fun of JaVale McGee hurt JaVale McGee's uh, free agency um, and how much he was worth the teams. That argument can be broken down. I think both of the arguments can be broken down. And I guess I just want to point out that that's possible, but also just that they were having that conversation in this very civil, insightful, thoughtful, friendly space. Um, Dwayne Wade also addressed his uh, issues with Nick Cannon and the anti-Semitic comments. And it all came across as very inspiring. So J.J. Reddick, JaVale McGee, The Arena, Barkley, Draymond, it all seemed hopeful to me. And so I just wanted, I'll give a shout out to the NBA for creating space for voices to come out of this really weird time. And these voices are inspiring, I think, and doing the best they can. Well, yeah, I think it speaks to the what I think is perhaps the biggest positive to come out of this whole crisis in terms of the sports world, which is just that um, we're getting to know, and of course, this is the whole theme of this this podcast we do. But we're getting to humanize these athletes in a way we've never done before because they're not spending, you know, six hours a day in practice and whatever that they've got time, uh, and so they've been doing stuff on social media. They've been engaging in new and different ways. And I feel like we know them better, and in some ways, that's not a good thing. Uh, if we look at Brooks Kapka and Bryson and some of these golfers, like uh, it's perhaps not been good for anybody on the PGA tour that we've gotten to know them a little bit better. Uh, but on the flip side for a lot of these sports, like even, I mean, we've talked about tennis, uh, but you know, this stuff is great to be able to see these folks and engage with them in this new and different way. I couldn't agree more with that. And I think that's the hopeful part, isn't it? Is that they come across as human beings. And when Mm -hmm. I think about at a large scale, what is underlying a lot of the problems in sports from a sports society context is that athletes are not seen as humans. And I think what is exciting about this is that when that player voice comes across in this way, they do come across as like not as glossy human beings. And there was one particular comment uh, in the comment sections on one of the episodes of JaVale McGee's uh, vlog. And it was very trite and to the point I said dudes created a vlog and has LeBron as a set piece or like a side set piece or something like that um he's a prop that's what he called him I like I love that like one of the most famous powerful people in the world and because JaVale McGee is the one with the camera uh LeBron just becomes a prop Mm -hmm. and I love that idea of making LeBron a prop (laughs) (laughs) So. Yeah. Well, and I, so let me build on that by talking about the biggest thing I've been paying attention to, which, you know, the NBA is playing basketball again. Yeah. Um, which is, it's just fascinating to see like how weird some of it looks and feels like the weird fan stuff. And anyway, um, but I do think, 
I, I want to talk about, you know, how important the NBA was, I think, at the beginning of this crisis in terms of making it feel important then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also how when they come back for this, you know, uh, they're the, you know, I think we've seen who else has come back in the U.S., right? We've got the MLS uh WNBA just started back up um baseball has started but man i don't i don't know anybody in my life that's really paying attention to baseball right now mm-hmm. unless you are a um, little bit not much like it started and it's almost like espn didn't care about it yeah at all um uh nfl stuff feels a long way away um and so like nba has got a big platform again mm-hmm. here and i think what what's going to be really compelling and what i what one of the reasons I'm kind of looking forward to it coming back is that maybe it can be a bit of a, um, a place for people to shelter, a place for people to find um, some enjoyment. But uh, it's seeing that institution take it seriously. And mm-hmm. like, you know, the way that they're sitting in the stands, the the players and the coaches with their masks on, the way that nothing looks like a normal NBA game would look. Right, uh, I think sets this tone for the rest of society that when that's what we're watching in basketball, that life is not normal. We have to behave like life is not normal. It's a very clear statement of that. And so I kind of appreciate, like, even though um, basketball is coming back, it's not like normal life is coming back. It's a, it's a, you know, and so I think there's an argument to be made that we shouldn't be bringing them back period at this point because of the dangers and stuff. But, bringing it back in a way that makes it clear that this is not normal feels like a potentially positive thing to see and show the rest of society. I love that. I think that's really well said. And it points to something that they discussed in the first episode of the arena. And they brought the question uh, uh, front and center and asked, like, should we be playing basketball right now? Um, and kind of left it hanging there, which I really appreciated. Like they didn't answer the question. They, they Mm -hmm. just asked it. And I loved that. I was like, that, that's, that's how we should be approaching it. I think, or at least I took a lot of inspiration from them. Yeah. I have to, uh, I also have to say that this is today is really the first time since this all kicked off that I'm excited to watch sports. Yeah. Uh, which has been interesting for me. Not, uh, and that's only because it's the last day of the premier league season. And there's some really interesting stuff about champions league positions on, uh, up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm excited to watch those games. And so it's interesting for me personally to unpack, like, you know, even though things are not at all normal and it hasn't like my enjoyment has certainly not, and my desire to engage has certainly not been at the same level it has been that when the chips fall and I like, there's an important game and it's kind of speaks to me that like when the, uh, you know, when we get to the conference semifinals, I'm probably going to be pretty much all back in on the NBA at that point. But right now, uh, right now I'm okay. Not being there. Right. Yeah. I'm completely with you. We're in very similar spots on that. So I'm uh, fingers crossed. I really want to see Pulisic in the Champions League next year. I agree. He's been exceptional in his return. I have to say, Man, Man United is looking phenomenal at the moment. Um, yeah, I haven't seen them play, but uh, the results and then, yeah, even that, uh, I loved the kind of Frank Lampard and uh, Klopp going at each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. All of it. Like I was like, okay. 
All right, Premier League, you're not as dull as I thought you were this year. Well, I think I just, you know, I don't want to go too far down this, but um, I do want to say that it's the Man City or Man United stuff. Well, first, we'll get into the Man City stuff here in a little bit, I think. But uh, the Man United stuff is fascinating from the perspective of like Ole, uh, the manager, was very much on the hot seat. Like there were, I think there were probably odds, uh, you know, 70 30 in favor of him being gone in the next week or two earlier in the season. And yeah. now all of a sudden he looks like uh, a genius again. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, A, I think it speaks to Bruno Fernandez and the impact he's had on the team. But also it's like, I mean, players matter a lot to the management careers, but also like give these guys some runway. Like why going back to, you know, a Sunderland until I die, what would have happened if they let Simon Grayson be there for two years? How would that have looked differently than the way they chased him out? Uh, mm-hmm. Even if he wasn't ideal, how could that have? Uh, how could he have gotten comfortable, and what could he have done if he'd had some time? Mm-hmm. So one thing that comes to mind with that, and this also, I may be going too far down this, but uh, I, as many in the sports world have been doing, is asking the question: How Corona is changing sports, like all the mm-hmm. way down to like individual teams, and part of something like man united coming out hot or other teams like not coming out of this well or coming out of it really well makes me wonder about team dynamics and like how and what teams experience was like during uh quarantine Mm -hmm. and then what kind of leadership they had through that time and coming out of it on the other side maybe closer unit and uh, more inspired to be a team and so that also connects with that uh, JJ Reddick interview with Patrick Beverly and they were saying something really fascinating about how both of them watch every NBA game that's on TV every night and they say one of the primary things they're looking for is if teams like each other or not mm-hmm. is if if teammates like each other mm-hmm. uh, and they said it's probably like in their opinion like the number one difference between good teams and bad teams in the NBA is if teammates like each other. And that's what they're watching for because they know all the signals. Well, and I think it's it's a huge component of it. I mean, we all see it just in our everyday lives. But, um, you know, to imagine, and I think it speaks to the, the management styles of some of these teams. Like, if you watch the bad teams, uh, you know, the Timberwolves as an example, like, uh, they just they don't fit and so uh, i think there's an unspoken art to those mm-hmm. general managers that like care about people's uh you know whether or not they like each other in some ways right as part of that uh and it's just one of those it feels like one of those very macho things like we're just going to bring in the best players right. and they'll figure it out versus right. you know these dynamics matter and right. so you know it's also where the very macho mantra breaks down and that being the I'm going to will this team to greatness. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, you're not. If those players hate each other, there is no willing it. Like the all that you hope now is humility. Um, and so the less macho you are is your only hope and you're coming in here with guns blazing is just going to continue to make this worse, which I think of the Knicks when I think of a team that's mired in that. Well, it makes me wonder about the go back to all the Jordan stuff as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, it, you know, we saw the stuff with Scotty Burrell, and we know that he wasn't always a great teammate. But at the same time, I feel like other than Scotty Burrell, a lot of his teammates 
seem to have uh, an immense amount of respect for him. And so it makes me wonder, like, if almost he picked he picked someone to pick on because that allowed him to get along better with everybody else on the team. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know, but it's uh, there certainly wasn't like they're going to be friends. But it, you know, I think the they painted this picture maybe that uh, they all didn't get along with each other when it seems like Scotty and Jordan like they were pretty tight during right. those times. And and Kerr, I think, would tell you that you know there was a point when they they weren't going to go get drinks, but they you know there was a lot of respect in that room, right? Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, you want you want to talk about our main topic? Yeah. Why don't you, if you're comfortable, kind of introduce what we're going to be unpacking a little bit? Yeah. So nothing specific in terms of a news story this week. Kind of a more uh, broad look at corruption in sports. So, um, you know, I realized as I was doing some reading and stuff for this, that I don't actually know how to define corruption for myself other than that. I know it when I see it. So I went and looked up a little definition here. So, uh, according to Google, um, uh, corruption is dishonest or fraudulent conduct by those in power, typically involving bribery. Well, uh, I think that we can look at this and say, there's a lot, uh, particularly if we uh, look beyond bribery, uh, there's a lot of this happening, even if we just uh, bring it to bribery as well, that uh, there's a ton of that happening in sports. And I think it's spoken to by the fact that uh, Interpol releases a biweekly report on uh, instances of corruption and investigations of corruption uh, in the sports world, which is kind of staggering that they feel the need to do that. And also, can I get that job? That sounds like a pretty sweet job. Um <laughs> We're so similar. I have the exact same note that I want to work for Interpol and write the biweekly bulletin. (laughs) Um, But I I do think that as I kind of looked into it, it's super complex. It's like if you look at the the Interpol stuff, it's a lot of it is on match fixing, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a lot bigger than that. I mean, that's a big face to it, but you know, there's a corruption happening at every level of every game. Um, and it's much, much, much more rampant than I think any of us want to believe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what do you think? Yeah, I, I had the same problem that from this very broad lens, being able to decipher what it what it is that I'm even thinking about. Uh, and so I think I, I like the idea of trying to make it clear that it's hard to make clear uh, exactly mm-hmm. what we're talking about. And I suppose um, you would might have to read that definition again, but the first thing that comes across my mind is the difference between sanction and unsanctioned corruption mm-hmm. and how we tell the difference. And I think of the glaring examples uh, that being amateurism in college sports um, and the NCAA and all the advertisers within the NCAA that make millions and billions of dollars off of uh, young people that aren't getting paid. And so I I guess in that way, it's like, I don't know if there is sports without corruption, if we're using that definition, which is maybe a harrowing thought, but maybe it's reality and it's like a really beneficial place to start. I'm not so sure. Um, yeah, I kind of had a similar starting point in like breaking it down because uh, there's very much two different kinds of corruption here. And we focus a lot on the illegal type of corruption, you know, uh, 
uh, FIFA being paid off for where to put the World Cup, uh, you know, all kinds of scandals in the IOC, where to put things, and then, you know, all kinds of stuff on a much smaller level. But on the same time, there's a ton of legal corruption happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, that, that goalpost is changing all the time, too, with the Man City recent example being perhaps the biggest one of those. Um, so it is, uh, you know, it's super hard to define. Um, and it's, you know, I think you're right that there, there's a lot of institutional environments in which we uh, have really made the corruption a portion of what we're talking about with all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether that's, I mean, on some level, you know, um, what we've seen uh, in some place like the NFL or something like that is as soon as, you know, as much as we can last week, we can uh, feel positive about FedEx convincing the Redskins to change their name, knowing that the that's how much power FedEx has just lets you know what the inner workings of all this stuff is and how much that's involved in everything. Uh, it's all about that money at the end of the day. Uh, and so whatever is going to make the most money, uh, whether it's, especially if it's legal, even if it's shady, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's treacherous space for an idealist, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because it, it almost seems insignificant and meaningless to ask the question, what is the incentive uh, to take part in corruption in sports? Because it's so easy to answer. And it it, it is so troubling. And I guess in some ways, though, it's that same thing of like, it's troubling, but it's also real and needs to be looked at. And that being that there is almost just an absolute perfect recipe for corruption in sports. And while there is, I think you can make the argument that within any institution, be it an individual institution or a collective of institutions, there is incentive for corruption, especially within capitalism. But uh, the sports world is seemingly just this like really dynamic, perfect recipe for it. And I think one example that makes that apparent to me is when you look at these policing bodies that are trying to control it or at least get a grip on it, Uh, So you mentioned Interpol and then Interpol working with UNESCO and the United Nations and about 55 other (laughs) international institutions. And then at the domestic level, uh, it was the UN that has um, this statement about what makes getting corruption out of sports so difficult. So I'm just going to read it because I I think it's really fascinating. But the UN says the main reasons for this, this being – the problem of not being able to control it are limited or non-existent domestic legislation, inadequate coordination and cooperation between relevant stakeholders, such as sports governing bodies, law enforcement, private sectors, the complexity of illicit and illegal activities linked to sports, as well as the lack of resources devoted to address these issues represent significant obstacles and the potential for high profits for criminals. In addition, awareness about the role played by organized crime in sports by investigators and other officials is limited, and the issue is often not prioritized by law enforcement authorities and sports organizations. It essentially says, this is impossible to stop. Like, there, and so I guess that gets me to a question of, like, is there sports without corruption? 
Yeah, it's oof. well. I think it's uh, you know, if it's not illegal, then the, there's so many people that would say, "Why do we care about it?" Right. And yet, right. Uh, it still feels like something I care about very much. Right. Um, and it, it's hard to explain why on some level. But I to get to your question there, I um, I, I think that perhaps um, what we're seeing in quarantine is. A, a shift to make that happen, maybe. Um, I, you know, I'm not super hopeful with any of this stuff, but you know, um, I've been really excited to watch uh, the cycling team EF Education First. Um, they've kind of branched out into and are doing these more. Um, uh, what I don't know what you would call them, um, non traditional cycling events. So like the Dirty Kanza and um, like Cape. Cape Epic, uh, in South Africa, these kind of, uh, they're big races, but not, you know, like the, where the biggest money is. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so there is a, one of the guys that does that for them, Lachlan Morton, who's also of course a professional cyclist, uh, in a traditional sense, uh, went and was like, Hey, I want to go do this. Uh, I want to set a new record on this route through Utah. Like the records 11 hours and 30 minutes. And he went out and they've recorded it and it was super impressive and super cool to watch him do it and mm -hmm. how they videoed it. And I'm like, that's the, I, like that, that really gets me going to see the folks engaging in that kind of way. And, you know, ex new and different, exciting kinds of explorations of the sporting world. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know. I think, though, that we're seeing some folks that are exploring that kind of space and seeing, you know, is there something out here that uh, we can kind of do this, particularly now because the institutional stuff is kind of broken down. Right. Uh, and so uh, now that we're that's done, we're seeing athletes really do what they want to do mm -hmm. in some ways. And that's, you know, the, I don't know if you've been following the Everesting record stuff. Are you familiar with that? I'm familiar with it. I haven't been paying much attention to it. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a huge news because uh, Alberto Contador broke the Everesting record, which, you know, the legend of uh, road cycling. Um, uh, and it's just like, okay, so real cyclists are paying attention to this at this point. And that's like, uh, in some ways, what I would love to see is just um, all the athletes get to pick whatever they want to do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I want to see lebron and all the best nba players decide all right we're going to play a tournament there's going to be no money involved in it or that you know we're we're all going to make a hundred grand sponsorship but we're they're not going to have any say on how we decide the tournament and we're just going to decide how we're going to play basketball like that's that's for me the kind of stuff that there's hope that maybe there's a vision out there but uh that hope is that it there is a vision but not that we'll ever accomplish it mm-hmm yeah, that, that takes me to a couple places. One is I think about one of the like key problems that pops up for me with all of this is that there is always, always, always an incentive in sports. Mm -hmm. and, and that being that I, I think of the example of like, doing a digital bike ride, it would be possible. And I can imagine a scenario wherein DraftKings or FanDuel starts to put odds on so-and-so, you know, um, setting a King of the Mountain record uh, and having like someone that's laying down a, a large bet get in contact with Contador and say, I'll pay you $100,000 to not do it, but make mm -hmm. it look like you tried your hardest to do it. 
And that, I don't know if you can ever get away from that mm -hmm. if sports are happening in public uh, in any way whatsoever. And I, I mean, it, it literally could go all the way. I was trying to think of like where the ideal would take you and that being like getting rid of the incentive. And I don't think you can. I don't think it's possible. I think it, it, it is impossible to get rid of it. So I was thinking of like um, a local cricket match between two neighborhoods it would be possible for someone to put bets on that mm -hmm. and to try and get players in that game uh, to throw the game. So it, it's just never going away. And so that takes me to this place of like, what do we do with that? Um, other than just admit that. It, and so I, I, I guess it took me then to a place of like, is it is it true that because most athletes don't get involved in corrupt schemes enough to keep us believing like because i think you could say the argument is that like it's the minority that get involved in match fixing uh or get involved with organized mm -hmm. crime and so because it's a minority does that make it um something we can put up with maybe i don't know i guess well, uh, that, yeah. like if i can one last thing i want to say about mm -hmm. it is like um, you think about other ills in society that we've dealt with throughout time and we put these like moral or immoral tags on them and you look at more liberal societies that are willing to legalize these things that are deemed immoral by um, more reactionary groups. And so you I like applying that to um, sports and corruption kind of creates an interesting space too because I, I don't know how you legalize it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, you know, there's an argument that that's, you know, we're better off in that way that, you know, I mean, um, uh, so I, I, you look at something like Man City's example, and I don't know if uh, you followed what happened in the end, but, you know, they were, their ban was overturned, but they were still given a fine. And like, there's a lot of folks that are angry about that. Jurgen Klopp and, and Mourinho amongst them. Um, uh not that what Mourinho has to say matters very much in my mind, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, so in some ways, like they've, they've set up these financial fair play rules to make the leagues work better. And yet when there's a, like a, as bad as clear a violation as you can imagine, um, they don't wind up doing anything about it. And so in some ways, what we've said is like, right, we're going to complicate this and try to make it more fair. And yet, we're not going to be able to adjudicate it in the way that we need to. And so in some ways, by trying to make it root out the corruption, you've made it worse mm -hmm. uh, in some way, because now it's not only is there corruption, but it's, uh, which was always there. It's now a, uh, uh, a much bigger issue and, and challenges the, the, the image of the league. And, you know, I just, there, there's immense questions that arise in that. And so in some ways, like if you were to just strip it all away and say, you know, um, other than max match fixing, which we're going to make illegal, every other form of, you know, uh, behavior is okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I, it makes me wonder how that would, uh, how that would change things. Um, cause I do think there's an argument that that might be the best way of going about it. I'm not sure I would make that argument, but I do think it exists out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do think though, that you're right, that particularly at the top levels, we don't see like, you know, the, there's a lot from if, if you read the Interpol stuff, it's almost all happening at like the second tier sports stuff. Like 
T20 in Sri Lanka or mm-hmm. the second tier soccer league somewhere or whatever. It's not often happening at that very top level. That's what made something like Juventus a massive situation a few years ago right. for Serie A to deal with. That I think that so often um, because the players aren't involved in it, like that makes the game pure enough for us to enjoy, even if, because I mean, let, let's be honest. I mean, there's so much we know about, how these leagues and teams are run. I mean, like, you know, um, the owners of a lot of these teams are awful and yet that doesn't preclude us from enjoying the game. Right. Uh, and so like in some ways this, this institutional corruption is no different. It's only when that corruption gets into the doping aspect or the, the, uh, uh, match fixing or, those other aspects where it starts to feel icky, uh, I think to a normal fan. And that's where it becomes unacceptable, I suppose. Right. And so I guess in, within all of that, there is maybe I'm wondering this space for, um, incentivizing fair play, if we want to use that phrase, fair play, Mm -hmm. uh, or incentivizing non-corrupt practices, and I don't know how you do that, but I, I wonder if there would be value in these institutions considering that. Um, I don't know. I, I guess in capitalist systems, we operate on incentives. And if the incentive still exists for those that are not necessarily at the top to get a piece of the pie through dubious means, then how do we as an institution, reach those individuals and say, like, I don't know, I, I, there's probably so many holes in this, but if someone that's ranked 758 in the world on the ATP gets approached by a match fixer in some other part of the world, like if there would be some sort of like reward program where they could go and say, hey, I was contacted by this person and just by coming forward, getting some sort of reward, like, well, you get $100,000 and you get an exemption to the next two tournaments because you hmm. let us know that that happened and you can prove to us that that happened. I don't, something like that, like really proactive um, incentivizing fair play. Well, I do think, you know, uh, there are steps, you know, interesting. The The Interpol reports are interesting reading. Um, and there was something in there. I, don't, I was a ways back, I think, but uh, mentioned that uh, there is work being done to create uh, anonymous places where people can go to report match fixing where the leagues say that they'll pay attention to it, which of course I think is the first step to that. You know, um, I kind of can't imagine um, the incentives would have to be pretty huge. I think because like in some ways in many of these places, like we can't fathom it, but in, you know, if you're the, if you're the 750th best tennis player and you're playing a regional tournament in India and a match fixer comes to you, chances are the people that they're connected to have the potential to like physically uh, harm you and get away with it. Uh, and that's just something that uh, we can't fathom and makes the incentives necessary pretty huge to make that work in some yeah. ways. Yeah, organized crime is a different thing than Bill Belichick filming the other sideline. Yes. Right. Yes. There's two different ball games here. Yeah. Well, I I think that um, I guess for me it often comes down to what what I want to see and what the most important step seems to be to me is the transparency component. Mm-hmm. That like that's where it all starts. Um, you, you know, 
we can uh, aim for some more ambitious things, but unless folks are willing to share what's really happening, I don't think it matters to us. So like, you know, uh, having leagues, uh, like the player stuff, you know, uh, I don't worry so much about because I think in some ways we're always going to have bad behaviors and that we know why a lot, you know, particularly those middle tier folks are in this trying, struggling to make a living. Uh, and it's, I don't know that there's anything we can do to, to do much to prevent those individuals from taking one off situations other than making it illegal and, and fighting it that way. But on an institutional level, which I guess is what bothers me more. Cause I, in some ways I, it's hard for me to blame the individuals that are, mm-hmm. that are making 50 grand a year. They get offered a million to do whatever, you know, like that's just, it's hard for me to blame them on that. But on an institutional level, like I want to know, I want FIFA to have to share every amount and all their chair people to have to share where all of their income came from every year. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff and, and, and having, you know, leagues explain, uh, be public about how the sponsorship deals work and being public about, you know, uh, what the conversations look like and what their contracts look like. I want to know that, that information. I think that's the starting point that I kind of come from. Yeah, I, I'm I'm so similar, and I, I love that depiction of it. Is it, it has me thinking of how transparency is so closely linked with um, the ideal of civility and the practice of being civil within a societal perspective. So literally, like, what is a civic society? Mm-hmm. And it's one in which I can see what's going on, especially if I'm a stakeholder, even a non-paying stakeholder, uh, that I have a human right to that information. And it's when we have the right to see that information and to see how things are moving, uh, we become especially more civil. Uh, mm-hmm. And can I, I have a faith and a belief that it's within that space that we can, um, I don't know, start to repair and hold on to that which is kind of sacred within sports. Um, or, you know, we use the word integrity a lot in this conversation. And I, I, I agree with you so fully that that's where we can kind of hold on to it. And if you don't mind me reading a little bit more, I came across mm-hmm. uh, Robert Lipsight who might be my favorite sports writer ever. Um, I, I just really appreciate his writing and his thinking and his activism within all of that. And um, I came across a piece I hadn't read before, but he published it last year, last fall. And uh, he says this about corruption in sports. He says, a half century ago, the sporting Cassandras predicted that the worst values and sensibilities of our increasingly corrupted civic society would eventually affect our sacred games. Football would become a gladiatorial meat market, basketball a model of racism, college sports a paradigm of commercialization, and Olympic sports like swimming and gymnastics a hotbed of sexual predators. Mission accomplished. <laughs> the Cassandras then forecast an even more perverse reversal. Our games, now profaned, would further corrupt our civic life. Winning would not be enough without domination. Cheating would be justified as gamesmanship. Extreme fandom would become violent tribalism. Team loyalty would displace moral courage, and obedience to the coach would supplant democracy. Okay, I think it's time for a round of applause for those seers. Let's hear it for Team Trump. And I, 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 I think it's often like an easy target, right, uh, to go that route with this. But I, 
I don't disagree. Um, and I guess it comes across as kind of negative and sad and dejected sort of writing and tone, but it also feels like a place to start if we're going to like um, think about how corruption operates in society and how the sports world reveals that for us. Yeah. And I think, you know, it kind of comes down to our, uh, the other side of our mission, I suppose, in addition to the humanizing question, which is, I, you know, for me anyway, uh, I won't speak too much for you, but um, a large portion of what we're trying to do is just encourage folks to be thoughtful about their sports fandom mm-hmm. and that, you know, uh, be just don't go in with a state of ignorance. It's no longer acceptable to be an ignorant sports fan. Mm-hmm. Like you, uh, it's your responsibility to look these things up and know what's going on and then make a conscious decision about whether or not you can support a a team or a league or a player based on what you now know about them as a person or as an institution. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we as fans have, you know, we, we haven't articulated it as much as we might like to, but you and I have decided that we like, NBA basketball and we're going to continue watching that and that comes not from a sense of hey I'm just going to not ignore everything that comes out about the NBA but coming from a place of you know I've explored this there are parts of it that I'm deeply uncomfortable with I'm going to remain deeply uncomfortable with them but I'm still going to enjoy what I can about the game right Uh, and I think that you know there there may come a time when it's too much and it crosses over the line and we say sports the impact is too great in the negative sense i cannot do this right uh and we have to be okay with that uh but it all starts with i think being uh acknowledging and being aware of what we're supporting uh when we get in bed with these sports i think that's really well said and i'm more than okay with you talking for me (laughs) that was i really like that yeah it has me thinking about maybe a potential topic to talk about. I don't know if it would be interesting or not, but uh, what it looks like to give up on a sport, mm-hmm. like what comes next. Um, because in many ways that becomes very personal because sports are communal. Uh, I often find uh, that it, it comes with negotiating the community within which you have watched that sport previously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Maybe there would be something there. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think there's a whole identity component to it as well. I mean, mm-hmm. like, it's just like, uh, you know, if I were to look back on myself in college when I decided, wait a minute, I'm not sure I believe the tenets of Christianity anymore. I think I might be an agnostic. Like, there's a whole, like, identity. I'm still coming to grips with that mm-hmm. uh, situation, you know, 15 years later. And it's the same, I think, for that sports fan that there's, uh, you know, you may give up on, you know, um, your fandom for Chelsea because you don't like Abramovich and what he's done. But what, like, that doesn't mean that it just goes away. I think there's a really fascinating question about what that looks like uh, in the first month, in the first year, in the first 10 years kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It raises interesting questions as well for me about the, uh, maybe another, alongside identity is the amount of social capital that comes with mm-hmm. being knowledgeable of the sports world. And very specifically, I'm thinking of like middle school boys, right? Of like a, the, a really troubling time in life. It's an easy thing to latch on to uh, in a sports obsessed society and a patriarchal society. Uh, to latch on to some sports knowledge and, and gain some ground with your friends and keep friends and 
uh, that's a powerful force, you know? And so, if, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But just, I, you know, thinking back, I can't, there are not many good friendships I have from college and before that didn't start on an athletic competition of some kind. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. Well, how many to go, the other angle being, uh, uh, parental and family stuff. I mean, how many uh, folks like you and I, their main relationship with their dad or other male family members is through sports. Right. Yep. Hmm. Well, anyway, we're not giving up quite yet, but uh, <laughs> uh, it, it does get harder and harder. It uh, does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was hard for me to read this article. I mentioned, um, the title of it is um, What Corruption in Sports Can Teach Us About Trump's America, June 2019, and it was published on truthdig.com. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he, he kind of ended the piece on this really somber note of saying, uh, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> like, I've, been, I've, been in, I've been in this game for 50 years, and in a Trump world, I, I can't watch anymore. Hmm. Um, he kind of leaves it vague, but nonetheless, the the sentiment comes across, and it's it's one I can relate to and identify with. And as much as I want to kind of like put it in a box and tie a bow on it and say like we'll figure this out, I'm like I don't know, man. This a lot of this really sucks, you know. Yeah, well, I think it's that's the key. Is we, you know, uh, as a society, we need to be more comfortable living in the gray and. Uh, you know, um, there are times when the gray becomes black and we have to say no. And we, it's hard once you're comfortable living in the gray, uh, which I think is important that there are too many folks that refuse to acknowledge the lack of certainty about things in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you get to that point, uh, you also have to maintain that there is a, an amount of certainty that's in one direction or the other. You know, nothing is as good as it seems, but there are things that are bad enough that we need to not engage with him anymore. Right. Well said. Anyway, anything else you got on corruption? I think I'm good there. Well, I will. So one last thing just to say is that I think it's important to, to make the distinction here. Uh, And I don't think there's much more to be said about it, but just that, um, a lot of this, there's a question between incompetence and malfeasance involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's just important to note, like something like Man City's punishment and, and the shambles of that, I think, comes down as much to incompetence and malfeasance from different parties all coming together and not being able to figure things out. Um, but that, that uh, as much as we think that these institutions should know how to run themselves, they really don't have a clue what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, if we were to keep going here, I, I I think scale is an important part of this mm-hmm. conversation, and as it almost is not worth mentioning because I feel like it's so obvious and we've talked about it so much. But in a globalized capitalist institutional system, the amount of opportunity for malfeasance grows exponentially. Uh, mm-hmm. and the same goofballs are running the massive institutions as there are running like lo- local. It's like we're all goofballs in these institutional spaces. Um, and if, if any sort of corruption starts to leak in, it's going to be at an exponential scale based on the amount of money being spent within that institution. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So small scale local leagues, all amateurs. One day <laughs> it will happen. And there'll still be corruption. And there'll still be corruption. I just think about it in the sense of like if if like someone in your local basketball league was taking bets and you found out about it, I think you would go you'd be like, Jimmy, what what the heck, man? Quit doing that. And he'd be like, All right. Right? As opposed to like what's happening to like yeah. Wigan Athletic and Man City right now. Like the the scale is just so different. Uh. Well, do you uh, do you have some trivia to bring us up here? I do. Uh, I promised you I would look up some Coca-Cola statistics. Oh, yes. Um, so we were both shocked by 7.5 billion cans of Red Bull being sold in a year. Still staggering. Well, uh, Coca-Cola sells 1.8 billion a day. Good grief. <laughs> Good grief. Uh, in a year, they do, the metric I, I could only find was um, 30, they sell 30 billion case units, which is a case unit is 5.7 liters. Wow. Yeah. And what also is fascinating about that is that's just Coca-Cola. Um, they have over a thousand products. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's pretty alarming. Well, and to think that Red Bull has that much money. Uh-huh. From their stuff, and just it's, uh, I can't fathom it. Yeah, I really can't fathom it. Yep. Um, so last week I asked you about Jim Thorpe. Um, mm-hmm. his gold medals were taken away and kind of re or given back to him. Uh, but what events did he win gold medals in? He won two. Well, so I know I'm fairly certain one of them was a sprinting thing. Um, I want to say the 100, but there's a part of me that thinks it's the 400. Um, and then I want to say the other was the long jump. But uh, give me the give me the truth here. Well, you're right, you're right, and you're right because it was the pentathlon and the decathlon. Okay. <laughs> so I, I I have images in my head of him sprinting and long jumping, um, and so I would have said those two. Um, but yeah, interesting. Indeed. That's interesting. We both had the same vision of him. Yeah, I wonder if there's just like a uh, uh, the only video footage that ever gets shown of him is him doing those two events. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Um, I was thinking about corruption. So this week's question, the estimated global income for the sports betting industry is somewhere between 700 billion and a trillion dollars a year. Um, and so I was wondering which sport do you think garners the highest volume of betting? Wow. Okay. I'll go ahead and say that this sport gets 70% of all sports bets worldwide. I think I know. Okay. Um, think about it. Yeah, I'm going to think about it. Okay. All right. Oh, but now I don't know. Oh, okay. We're going to have to, I'm going to have to get the answer off there. I'm not going to be able to wait a week for this. All right. Cool. All right. Well, uh, anything else you got this week? Uh, no, that's great. Yeah, well, thank you guys for listening. Uh, again, we'll we'll be back next week, but give us a rating and review in the meantime. And I hope you're enjoying our new, hopefully, clearer and uh, more articulate voices. Uh, not not that we have anything more articulate to say, but just that they sound a little clearer. Fidelity, uh, not quality. Fidelity. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, we're trying out a new recording platform today. So, um, but yeah, we we'll hope you'll be back next week. Give us a rating and review. And uh, thank you as always, Kyle. Thanks, Brad.
Hot to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.